Well, as, as we've uh, just sung about, with three such wonderful songs, talking about the, the, the power, the might, the, the everlasting uh, omnipotence of our God, it is uh, perhaps interesting and difficult that we come to the passage that we are coming to this morning in light of that. Let me ask you this morning, do you ever wonder where God is amidst all the evil in the world? Sometimes we look at the world around us, we see footage of tanks flattening civilian cars, we read about terrorist groups mercilessly blowing up buildings without a care of who is inside them. We read about, we hear about drug lords and cartels on the streets that continue to commit heinous crimes. And we ask God, where, where is he in all of these things? Does he care? Can he even do anything? Is he really good? Such questions hit us head on in our passage this morning. So let me pray for us as we prepare to hear it. And Brad will then come and read it for us. Let me encourage you to open it up in Matthew chapter 2 in those blue Bibles if you don't have one. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good and powerful king. So often we find it difficult to believe that, to see it. That is the case, especially when we look at the evil all around us and we wonder what it is that you are doing. As we hear and we meditate on your word this morning, on this passage in Matthew chapter 2, may we not be stubborn and stiff-necked. May we not be ones who think we would do a better job if we were in charge. But Lord, please give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, our passage this morning is from Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 to 23, um, which is page 471 in the Blue Bibles. Um, And if you don't have a Bible, uh, please feel free to take one of them as our gift to you as well. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is, about to, Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, 
Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. God is not afraid of your hard questions. He's not afraid of the things that you wrestle with in your soul. Every now and again, uh, God's Word confronts us with some of the more difficult to answer realities of life. And this morning's passage is one of them. Like Pharaoh's slaughter of Israelite baby boys in Egypt, Herod's slaughter of all the baby boys in Bethlehem confronts us with the evil of the world. As we'll discover, in terms of numbers, it doesn't even rank among the worst of these kinds of massacres in history. But it does tap into what is at the root of all such atrocities. The evil of the human heart. And fittingly, it happens because of the very one who came to redeem the human heart and to defeat evil. There are three panels of the story in this morning's passage, and each of them has one of Matthew's trademark fulfillment quotes to show who Jesus is. Let's begin with the first panel, the flight to Egypt. Now, kids, uh, your Bible might have a title over this section which says, The Flight to Egypt. In case you're wondering, I'm sure you probably figured this out, there weren't any planes around in Jesus' day. People didn't have wings either. So, flight was not the kind of flight that we normally think of uh, when we come to this passage. Flight can also refer to fleeing from something, to running away from something. And this is what is meant by this term. We saw last week how uh, the Magi from the East came and incredibly, they were the ones who recognized who Jesus was and fell down and worshipped him. They weren't even the Jews And they surrendered great and princely treasures to him. Now Matthew contrasts them with Herod and the chief priests and the scribes who were the ones who should have been seeking and worshipping Jesus. And then as the Magi departed, God warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. So they went back another way. And we pick up the story in verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Rise and take the child. There's a common way of phrasing that instruction. Now, kids, if you cast your mind back to a couple of weeks ago, do any of you remember how the Lord told Joseph about Mary being pregnant by the Holy Spirit? Does anyone remember how he did that? How did Joseph find out? 
Yeah. So, sorry? Because of his dream. That's right. God came to Joseph in a dream. And who came to him in a dream? And remember, yeah. An angel. That's right. Does anyone remember what the word angel means? Messenger. Wow, the kids are, you guys are on it this morning. That's right, messenger. Angels, at the very least, in addition to whatever else they are, are spiritual beings through whom God delivers his messages to people. And here, the angel gives Joseph yet another warning. He, he comes to him again and warns him. Uh, I've signed up to TIO's Cyclone and Severe Weather Warning System. I don't know if you have. If you haven't, you probably should. So whenever one of those is approaching Darwin, I get a text message and an email to tell me about it. And the purpose of that is so that I have time to prepare and act accordingly before the danger comes. This is exactly what the angel has done for Joseph. He knows that Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him, so he is warning him to take them both and to flee to Egypt. And notice how he says, take the child and his mother, instead of to take his mother and the child. Now, that would have been the normal way to express it. In case we haven't picked up on it yet, this is yet another indicator to let us know that there is something seriously special about this baby boy. And so those of us who are on Team Jesus, we think, yes, he's going to be safe. The angel has warned him, they'll be fine. Joseph, as we've already seen, has been a faithful and obedient follower of the Lord. And he does exactly what we would expect of him from verse 14. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Joseph immediately obeys. And importantly, Matthew now gives us the first of three Old Testament prophetic fulfillment quotations in this passage. Here, Matthew was quoting from the book of Hosea. And if you're unfamiliar with that book, it's the one where God calls the prophet Hosea to go and marry a prostitute whom he says will be unfaithful to him and will keep leaving him and running off to other lovers. And the relationship and the events that unfold in the book serve as an illustration of the way Israel treated God. They were the unfaithful wife. By the time you get to chapter 11 of Hosea, God is talking about how he has shown great love to his people Israel. And he shifts the metaphor from Israel being an unfaithful wife to Israel being a son. And in the context of this chapter, God is referring to the fact that he brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt, showing his love and might by saving them out of the hands of Pharaoh. That's what he's saying when he says, out of Egypt, I called my son. But instead of turning to God and instead of praising him and being obedient to him, Israel committed sin against him by turning to other idols. And false gods. You can hear in chapter 11 of Hosea the pain in God's voice. The same kind of pain that is felt by a faithful husband with an unfaithful wife. The same kind of pain that is felt by a father who has only ever treated his son with love and kindness. 
but is then rejected by him. So why does Matthew quote this verse and apply it to Jesus? Well, as I mentioned over the last few weeks, what Matthew has been doing so far and continues to do right throughout this book is show how the Old Testament story has images and metaphors embedded within it. And these historical events and these stories, they point beyond themselves to a future reality that finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. This is why Matthew says often in his gospel, this happened so that scripture or this happened so that what was spoken by the prophet would be fulfilled. Nine times he says that specifically about Jesus. And so here we get the first hints that this passage is showing how Jesus is the greater son. Out of Egypt I called my son. Unlike the son who so quickly turned away from his father, Jesus would not turn to false gods and idols. Jesus would be the obedient son. For Israel, freedom from Pharaoh's tyrannical hand and the parting of the Red Sea, they were still not enough to sustain their allegiance to the Lord. It wouldn't take long at all before they would just leave him once again. And such is the effect of sin and the evil in the hearts of all people since the fall. God's people are no exception. So quick were they, so quick are we to abandon the God who loves us. So quickly we forget all that God has done for us, his goodness, his grace, his gifts. Even though he is the husband who has always been faithful, even though he is the father who continues to give good gifts, we instead wander away and turn to shinier things. Praise God that out of Egypt he would call out his very own son. And he would be good for us. He would be faithful and obedient for our sake. Jesus is the true Israel. And he would bring full and final redemption for all his people. His flight to Egypt to avoid being massacred by Herod would cement his status as the true son. Because the reality is that most of those who were supposed to be God's children, the Jews, they were, as Jesus said in John 8:44, of their father, the devil. Sons of the evil one, and he was a murderer from the beginning. Like father, like son. Which brings us to the second panel of the story. Two, inescapable evil. Now remember the last time we saw Herod, he was talking to the Magi from the east. He, he called together a secret meeting and he told them that he would love to come and worship the king of the Jews with them. He's on team Jesus, he said. But now we see his true colors. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem 
and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Do you remember from last week's passage, Herod ascertained when they had seen the star in verse 7? He now uses that information that he got from the Magi to carry out his heinous massacre of the boys of Bethlehem. I know it's just a couple of sentences, but don't let that just pass you by. What a sobering reminder, especially as we have our own children here today. Some people try to say that this story must not be true because, you know, something like this would surely have been recorded somewhere else. Josephus, the historian, for example, who's given us the best records of this time that we have outside of the Bible, surely would have recorded this event. Well, just to clear up a detail that you might not be aware of, the population of Bethlehem was probably around 300 to 1,000 people, which means the best estimates of how many boys this would have been is between about 10 and 30. I'm not suggesting that, that suddenly it's not a big deal. But I share that with you to let you know why it is the case that other historians may not have noted this. I shared with you last week some of Herod's terrible acts and executions. Another I didn't mention is an order that he gave for a number of citizens to be executed when he died so that people would mourn at his funeral. Here's an excerpt from Josephus. When he was departing out of this life, the whole nation should be put into mourning and indeed made desolate of their dearest kindred. When he gave order that one out of every family should be slain, although they had done nothing that was unjust or against him, nor were they accused of any other crimes. When you have a character like that, and this is just one of several other examples that we have on record, then it's unsurprising that he would do something like this. And this is hardly surprising. These are certainly things that rulers of the ancient world did. It's not hard to find accounts of kings losing their temper and people, sometimes a lot of people, being collateral damage because of it. So even though Matthew's account is the only one that we have of this event, it's entirely in keeping with Herod's character. And not just Herod's character, but the character of many, many kings before him. All the way from Pharaoh through Ahab through Nebuchadnezzar, this is the response of the sinful heart when God comes and says, I am king. Yes, all these examples are from guys who were actually kings. And perhaps that's why their reactions were so extreme. They had more power than anyone else in the land at the time. But God comes and says this to every one of us. God confronts our own claim to the throne of our lives. And he says, will you rejoice at my coming? Will you lay down your treasure and fall before me in worship? 
You see, we are rightly horrified when things like this happen in history. But they are reminders of the true depths of our evil, of the horrendous things that we are capable of. But brothers and sisters, don't ever think that this could never be us. Don't ever think that, you know, this is, this is only the top 1% of man-men who are truly this evil. I would never do such a thing. Were it not for God's grace in our hearts, who knows what we would be capable of if the circumstances allowed it? Who knows what you or I would do if we were king? This kind of king with the power to execute an order that resulted in the merciless execution of many with no consequences for ourselves. This is why we must never be complacent about our own hearts and our need to despise and to detest and to turn away from the evil that lurks within them. As Charles Spurgeon once said, be aware of no man more than of yourself. We carry our worst enemies within us. Such is the potential for destruction when sin runs rampant. It not only ruins our own lives, but it causes destruction in others. What was it that motivated Herod to respond in this way? Was his pride so badly wounded because he had been tricked? Was this some kind of retaliation? A bit of an, I'll show you to the Magi. Was he furious because things didn't go according to his plan? He'd been outwitted. Or was he just mad about the fact that the one who'd been born king of the Jews was now somewhere on the loose? Was he worried about his crown. Let's be honest, it was probably a mixture of all of these. Our sin blinds us and causes us to have a kind of tunnel vision that seeks only what we want, whatever the cost. Herod didn't care about the lives he was about to take. Did it matter to him that each of these little boys who were two years and younger had never done anything wrong to him? Did it matter to him that he was tearing away from them a whole life and future that awaited them? Did he care about the grief and trauma that the parents and families of these boys would carry with them for the rest of their days? Of course not. He was blinded by rage and the evil desires of his own heart. Do you recognize the same tunnel vision when you succumb to your own sin? It ought to frighten us to know that such atrocities, given the right circumstances, could flow out of any of us. Don't believe me? Tell me whether the telltale signs of what drove Herod are sometimes present in your own heart. 
You notice them when you feel like doing something in a fit of rage and you don't care who it hurts. Or when fury rises up in your throat because things aren't going the way you want them to. When these telltale signs start to rear their heads in your heart, in your speech, and in your actions, brothers and sisters, ask yourself the question, is there a threat to your crown that is causing this reaction? Is your pride being insulted? Are you retaliating in an attempt to get back at someone and show them who's better? Are you angry because things have not gone the way you planned? Are you just mad about the fact that you want to be the king of your life and don't want to submit to the king, the true king, in this moment? The evil lurking in our hearts, ready to pounce, ready to devour, ready to destroy us and others. That ought to terrify us. And it ought to cause us to cry out for mercy, for redemption, and for God's sanctifying work of the Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. It ought to cause us to lay down our crowns before the King and seek His grace. There is no true life in the way of the self-appointed King or Queen. Only death. And that's not just death for ourselves, but also for those around us. That's the reality, isn't it? Evil is not only inside us, it is also all around us. We are not only ones who commit evil, we are also those who receive evil. Such is the reality and the tragedy of living in a fallen world. One that we cannot escape. So we don't just cry out with Paul, who will save me from this body of death? But we also groan, longing for God to put everything right in his creation. And we feel this when we read passages like this in Exodus 1.22, which is such a similar situation to this chapter in Matthew. We recognize that from Genesis 3 onwards, things like this have happened and will continue to happen. You don't have to look very far to see such atrocities still occurring in the world today. You don't have to look very far to see people justifying the slaughter of innocents for the sake of their own crown. And more often than not, it is those who do not have the power to defend themselves who suffer at the hands of those who see them as a threat to all that they want in life. We are not only perpetrators of evil, we are victims of it. And often the most vulnerable suffer the most. And this is one of the most confronting challenges for the Christian who believes in a God who is sovereign and good. I read this passage and I am on team Jesus. I'm I'm glad that the angel warns Joseph to get to safety in Egypt. But I can't help but ask the question, Why didn't the angel warn all of the other families with other young boys in Bethlehem? John Piper, in a fictional poem called The Innkeeper, imagines a scenario where Jesus returns to Bethlehem on his way to Jerusalem at the end of his life 
And he visits the very inn that housed his family when he was just a young boy. I encourage you to have a read of it when you have the opportunity. You can even watch a video of him reading it on YouTube. I will forewarn you, though, that you should have tissues ready. Let me read you an excerpt from it where Jacob, the innkeeper, speaks to adult Jesus about what happened that night. Now, just a reminder, this is fiction and not the Bible. But I think it captures the emotion of Matthew 2 in a way that we can sometimes miss if we don't linger on the gravity of these few verses. Here is Jacob speaking to Jesus about his own sons named Joseph and Ben and his wife Rachel. But in one year, the slaughter squad from Herod came. And where do you suppose they started? Not a clue. We didn't have a clue what they had come to do. No time to pray, no time to run, no time to get poor Joseph off the street and let him say goodbye to Ben or me or Rachel. There's more to it, which wouldn't be appropriate to share with kids present. But I love that Piper does not shy away from the horror of this night. It's no wonder Matthew sees in this event a fulfillment of the prophet Jeremiah's words. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the right response to such a tragedy, isn't it? Weeping and loud lamentation. It's likely that by Jesus' time, this verse was quoted in reference to any poor treatment of Jewish children. And it captures how any person would feel about the loss of children in their family. Strangely enough, this verse actually sticks out in the original context of the book of Jeremiah. You see, it comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, which is a chapter that is talking all about the new covenant and the great hope and joy that that brings. Verse 15, which is the verse that is quoted, is a brief departure from the tone of that chapter to remember the tragedy of the fall of Jerusalem and the Jews being exiled to Babylon. Ramah was a place where the exiles paused on their way to Babylon as they were being taken in exile, and Jeremiah was released there and sent back. It wasn't really a place that was close to Bethlehem. Rachel, who died centuries beforehand, is mentioned here as representative of the people of Israel, seeing uh, as, as she was the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. It's a bit like talking about uh, Uncle Sam or Lady Liberty as representing the United States. So even though this isn't talking about Bethlehem, Matthew quotes it because it captures the response of the people to Herod's Pharaoh-esque Massacre. Weeping and loud lamentation. But it wouldn't surprise me if Matthew is doing more here. 
Could it be that in the middle of such horrible tragedy, there is hope all around it? Even as the Lord recalls the tragedy of the exile and the children who are lost in it, in the very next verses in Jeremiah, he promises hope and return for the children of Israel. Listen to verses 16 and 17. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. In the midst of tragedy, in the midst of seeming like all is lost, that there is no hope that God is unable to do anything. He promises hope. Is that not the same thing we have in our passage this morning? Yes, God ensured Jesus' life would be saved from Herod's slaughter. But the best part is that it was not just that Jesus survived, not just the fact that he survived, it is why he survived. And that brings us to our final panel this morning. Rescued from evil. We each all need rescuing from evil. The evil of our own hearts and the evil of our world. And that rescue comes in Jesus the Nazarene. Let's read from verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Herod dies, and yet again the Lord leads and instructs Joseph on what to do next. And yet again, Joseph immediately obeys. May the Lord grant us such ready obedience that Joseph displayed. May we hear his word and his instructions in Scripture and have such deep trust in the Lord that we would be obedient no matter the cost. Notice that in verse 22, Joseph has his own concerns about Archelaus. And kids, do you remember how I mentioned that there is more than one Herod in the Bible? Do you remember that? There's a few of them. Yeah. Sometimes they go by different names. Well, in this verse, here is one of them. Herod's son, Archelaus, he was also called Herod. But for obvious reasons, Matthew just goes by this name. He's afraid that, and Joseph is afraid that Archelaus might put his family at risk and put them in danger. So Joseph doesn't seek to go back to the Judean region, to Bethlehem where Jesus was born. That is surely a no-go zone now. Joseph's fears are confirmed and God presumably once again warns him in a dream not to go back. So instead, he heads a fair ways north and goes to the region of Galilee. Now, all the way along in this passage, 
Matthew has noted the movements of Jesus and his family. Each of these uh, uh, Old Testament quotations has the name of a place in it in all of chapter 2. And you can see from this map, I hope you can see it from the map, that this family has done some serious traveling. They started in Bethlehem there. They fled to uh, Egypt all the way down in the southeast. And then as they came back, they went back up to Nazareth. Now, we don't know for sure whether that's exactly the route they took, but that gives you a rough idea of where they went and came from. And it's actually probable that the gifts of the Magi helped make it possible for them to travel this far and to continue to live. But look how far Nazareth in Galilee is from Bethlehem in Judea. That's ages away. It's not too unlike moving to Darwin from Adelaide in the ancient world, not in terms of kilometers. And this is not an insignificant detail. You know, it's not like geography was Matthew's favorite subject in school, and so he wanted to show off how good he was at it. No, you see, the regions of Galilee and Judea were separated by Samaria. And because Galilee's history, because of Galilee's history, it meant that the region had a fair amount of foreign influence and a lot of intermarrying. And because of this, many of the Jews in Judea looked down upon their Galilean cousins. Perhaps it's also not unlike the way South Australians might feel about Territorians. Being from Victoria, I don't know that for sure, but being from Victoria, it seems more clearly to me like the way Victorians think about Tasmanians. I think that's probably a pretty clear parallel. And you see some of this bleed through in John 7, 52. Listen to the Jews saying, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They clearly did not think highly of the region. And I think this is what Matthew is getting at in the last verse of our passage. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Of all of Matthew's fulfillment verses, this is easily the most puzzling. Many readers of God's word over the years have come up with various explanations for it, some even involving very creative and imaginative Hebrew word plays. And perhaps there is some credit to those, but I think the best explanation of, of Matthew's quote here is one that takes into account the details of how Matthew phrases this sentence and what he has been doing all along. You see, you notice how this quote, quote, is not really a quote. All the others that we have seen, they, they have been. Matthew has said, so that the, what could be fulfilled by uh, the prophet's Sorry, what was spoken by the prophet would be fulfilled. And then he quotes the verse. No, here, Matthew simply says that he would be called a Nazarene. He's not suggesting that you will find that exact quote in the Bible. And I'm glad he's not, because you won't. It's not there. On top of that, of all the times that Matthew speaks of fulfillments of prophecy in his gospel, this is the only time where he uses the term prophets in the plural. Every other time, he speaks of what one prophet has said. So clearly, Matthew is doing this on purpose. He knows what he's doing. And it seems to me like he's continuing here what he's been doing and continues to do throughout the gospel, as I've talked about. He's taking themes from the Old Testament, patterns and shadows present in the text, and showing how they find their fulfillment in Jesus. 
He's saying what was said by the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. But how does Jesus being a Nazarene fulfill the prophets of the Old Testament? Especially when those, there's no specific text. Well, as I already mentioned, the Judeans didn't think very highly of the Galileans. And not only that, but Nazareth in particular was a city to be scorned. Listen to Nathaniel's response to Philip when he says that they, they reckon they found the Messiah in Jesus of Nazareth. He says, sorry, he says, Nazareth, Nazareth, can anything come good? Good? Sorry. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, he's not joking around when he says that, the way that you and I might joke around. You know, we might say, Cuba Petey. Can anything come good, you know, good come out of Cuba Petey? Apologies to any Cuba Petey people. And later on in Acts 24, when Christians are referred to as those who are part of the sect of the Nazarenes, that's a title that is meant to sting. That's not just descriptive. Just imagine being known as the sect of Cuba Petey. And you'll get a feeling for how that was meant to sound. What is it that Matthew is trying to get at? It seems to me that he is showing how, by virtue of being a Nazarene, Jesus fulfills what the prophets would say about the Christ. That he would be, as Isaiah 53 puts it, despised and rejected by men. As Psalm 22 puts it, that he would be scorned and mocked. Where Jesus grew up would be part of the fulfillment of his messiahship. Each of these four fulfillment quotes in chapter 2 has the name of a place. And the geography of Jesus' birth and early life served to show how he was the one whom the Old Testament anticipated. The hope of Jeremiah 31 would be fulfilled in him. But what was that anticipation? What was that hope? As we've seen over the last few weeks, most Jews thought the Christ would be a military leader. Surely the thinking went, the Christ promised in the Old Testament would put his foot on Herod's head and crush his crown so that God's people could rule the earth. Well, the sense of that is almost right. You see, Jesus the king would accomplish far more than just overthrowing tyrants like Herod. After all, as history has taught us, if you overthrow one tyrant, then you usually just end up with another one. You either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain, as the modern saying goes. No, Jesus wouldn't just deal with the symptoms of evil. He wouldn't just go around spending his whole life conquering evil earthly kings and ruling over them so that we could call him Jesus the Great. He would go to the source. He would overthrow the devil himself. He defeated the devil and the great enemy of our sin and its consequences of death when he himself, who knew no sin, became sin for us on the cross. 
And he did it so that by turning from our sin, by shunning evil and trusting in him, we might become the righteousness of God. He is a king who has conquered evil and brought us redemption by his grace. Friends, that is the great victory Christ won for us at the cross. And it is available to all who come to him and who fall before him in surrender. For all who throw down their crowns and submit to King Jesus. In Jesus, by the power of his Holy Spirit, the power of evil increasingly loses its grip on our hearts. Jesus didn't escape Herod's grasp just to live a cushy life as a Galilean carpenter. He didn't do it so that he could avenge the families of Bethlehem and destroy Herod's sons. No, he would be the one who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He wouldn't stay in Nazareth. He wouldn't stay in the region of Galilee, but he would go all the way to Jerusalem where he would be crowned with a crown of thorns and in his death defeat the great enemies of the devil, sin, and death itself. And one day he will return as king. And will finally and completely do away with them all. God's not afraid of our struggle with the evil in this world. And the evil in our own hearts and all around us. And sometimes we might feel like we need more of an answer than what God gives us. But there is one thing we can know for sure. He has defeated evil in Jesus. And so the first step to eradicating it is in us turning from it and trusting in Christ for salvation and for sanctification. And so we place our lives in the hands of the one born in Bethlehem, called out of Egypt, Raised in Nazareth, crowned in Jerusalem. King Jesus. Let me finish with Jesus' response to Jacob in Piper's poem. I am the boy that Herod wanted to destroy. You gave my parents room to give me life, and then God let me live and took your wife. Ask me not why the one should live, another die. God's ways are high, and you will know in time. But I have come to show you what the Lord prepared the night you made a place for heaven's light. In two weeks, they will crucify my flesh. But mark this, Jacob. Mark this, listener. I will rise in three days from the dead and place my foot upon the head of him who has the power of death. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we know that every word of yours is without error. It, it brings life and it speaks truth. And Father, we acknowledge that sometimes it is hard for us to fathom, to grasp, to understand what you have said. Sometimes it's even harder to respond in faith and in trust and in obedience. But Lord, we pray that as we bring these struggles, these questions, these difficulties that we have to you, as we wrestle with the problem of evil in our own hearts and in our world, may we see you, our great, our good, our powerful God, who has not only triumphed over evil, but offers a way for us to join in your redemption, in Jesus our Lord. So we pray, Lord, that you would place within us a deep trust and a love for you. Please, Father, may we have hearts redeemed, lives transformed, that we may glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.